think that one of the greatest challenges of our existence, whether Christian or not, is acceptance. It's one of the first battles in the Bible. It's a decisive loss for Cain. But this question of how are we accepted and why are we accepted? And in our world today, people do crazy things to get attention out of a desire to be accepted. And people sometimes do the right thing out of a desire to be accepted. And I suppose this desire has got to be hardwired into humans or else it wouldn't have been all the way back with Cain and Abel. We're told that they both made a sacrifice and that God accepted Abel's sacrifice. And Cain made a sacrifice and God did not accept it. Doesn't say he was mad at Cain or doesn't say he rebuked him or told him off. It just says that he didn't accept it. And by that we can infer that Abel must have felt something, heard something, or come to know something that made him aware of God's acceptance. Amen. I think that even in relationships, we want to be accepted by our friends. We want to be accepted by our parents. We want to be accepted by the world. Because the opposite of acceptance is rejection. And rejection is one word that just typifies so many fears, so many dreads in the human soul. And so we're always trying to see, is this where I'll give myself and be accepted? Is this where I'll try and be accepted? Bumper stickers are made with slogans like, accepted for who you are. And the church puts these bumper stickers up too. They, they say, God accepts you for who you are. And I suppose that in some sense that's true. But the good thing is he doesn't accept us and leave us where we are. <laughs> he loves us when we're yet sinners, but he's not content to leave us there. And this, this tension, this desire to be accepted has a very specific name that we use, we call it by all the time. What is this term, this tension, this desire to be accepted? Insecurity. And if that's true, then security is acceptance. I don't feel secure alone. I need to fit somewhere. I'm like a puzzle piece and I need to find my puzzle. So this insecurity, it plagues us. I suppose that if we lacked any insecurity and if we were just utterly complacent, that wouldn't be a great thing either. But we don't want to live in this insecurity. Insecurity produces all kinds of unpleasantries. Would you all agree with that? It makes fools out of us. It makes jokers out of us. 
It's this compulsion to be accepted. It makes liars out of us. It makes cowards out of us. Insecurity is a dangerous thing. Amen. And what is it that God is after? What is that acceptance that Abel knew? What is that acceptance that would give me the peace and the security in God and in the relationships he's given me that I need? I think if we could understand this, it would change us. Let's look at one angle of insecurity before we go further. Let's, um, let's look at how insecurity messes with discipleship. What is the purpose of discipleship? To remind you that you're horrible, right? Well, I'm glad everybody's laughing. Most everybody's laughing. What is the purpose of discipleship? I mean... The shortest definition I would give for discipleship is to change you. Nobody needs discipleship if they've already arrived. Do you think there's any discipleship going on in heaven? Do you think Peter is still getting those rebukes that he got from Jesus? <laughs> I think when he crossed the threshold, shoo, <laughs> he made it. Discipleship is, is to change us. It's simply sanctification in action. That's all it is. Have you ever been discipled about something? Correction is, uh, no, it was 1975, not 1976. Oh, thank you, and you say it right the next time. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is, did you discern the attitude when you were speaking? And you discern it, and you repent of it. And then a couple days later, um, do you discern that that same attitude is here again? And a week later, do you discern that that attitude is here again? Discipleship is a persistent process that we permit others to help us with because we don't believe that we have fisheye mirrors around our whole existence. There are blind spots there are things we don't get, we don't see. Amen? So discipleship, there's one definition for it in Hebrews, I think. He just makes this categorical statement about it. Discipleship is a very pleasant process. Is that what he said? What does he say? He said, no discipline, discipleship, same word, no discipline is pleasant at the time. Just like training to be an athlete is not pleasant. Nobody straps stones into a pack and puts the pack on their back and runs up and down six flights of stairs several times a day because it's pleasant. But they embrace the unpleasantry in order to gain, in order to purchase something they don't have that is more valuable than that unpleasantness. And so discipleship is not pleasant. If you're giving discipleship or receiving discipleship, it's mutually unpleasant. It's so unpleasant that it's almost extinct. Where are you going to go where someone is going to disciple you? And yet this is the Great Commission. People talk about the Great Commission as if it's going and praying for people, preaching the gospel to them, and, and healing them. That's not the Great Commission. He says, go do this, that, and the other thing, 
and make disciples of them, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So discipleship is changing us because it's teaching us to make Jesus our Lord, teaching us to be obedient. Can we be obedient without discipleship? No, we cannot. We must be discipled to obey because what we call obedience is just a self-deception. So how does insecurity tamper with the change process of discipleship? What does insecurity do to that? I believe in, in one way it would make the person being discipled to feel like they're not being accepted by the one who's discipling them instead of what's actually happening so they're trying to be changed. Well, doesn't the Bible say the Lord disciplines those he hates and scourges every son he rejects? Huh? So insecurity is alarmed by reminders of the fallen nature. Amen? Why? We like to say insecurity is alarmed when it sees its faults. But if we're Christians, do we accept that we're good with faults? Or do we accept that we have a faulty nature that in a sense is irredeemable and that's why we need a new nature being renewed in the likeness of God do you see the difference there's two ways of looking at fault one way is you're a really good person in fact you're almost perfect but you have a mistake okay the other way is you have a fallen nature, and it's always competing with the new man God is making out of you. Amen? And that new man is being renewed in the likeness of God, but the old man is being corrupted, Paul says, through the deceit of sin. So when God comes to you and he says, you got a problem, you want to flick it off, but then he comes and says, and here's another one. You're like, oh, okay, flick. Oh, but here's another one, flick. Flick, 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 flick. You can get very uptight because you start to feel that you're all bad. But that does not disquiet someone who has already come to a conviction that they have a fallen nature. And so they're not identifying with that fallen nature. They're expecting to see it. They're expecting it to try to crawl out of the grave. And they're committed to putting it back where it belongs. And half the problem is that we don't know how to parse between the voice of the fallen man and the voice of the new man. That which is born of God cannot sin. That's the new man. That's the new man that God has birthed inside of us. Cannot sin. When God starts to deal with us, what he's basically saying is, you're letting the old man crowd out the space where the new man is supposed to grow. And so discipleship is not an insult to my dignity. Discipleship is a handy reminder of my body of death that I need to keep in the grave. Someone who is undone by the revelation of their failure 
is someone who is invested in themselves instead of in God. That's someone who is hoping in their goodness, hoping in their acceptance. And so if they start seeing, I blew it here, I blew it there, I blew it, this panic starts to set in because they don't know why they're accepted. They don't know what allows for their acceptance. Why are you accepted by God? Is it because of your parentage? Is it because of your obedience to the law? Your beauty? Your intelligence? How few wrinkles are on your clothes? No, what is it? Why are you accepted by God? Because you're his friend. Because you're his friend? I like where that's going. I was thinking because you're his child. Because you're his child. Amen. We need to understand that God accepts us because we are his child. Then we need to ask, what allows me to claim that I am still God's child? And that becomes the sole focus of our quest for acceptance. I am God's child. Why do I get to say that I am God's child? Let's start with the starting point. How are we begotten? Well, initially we are begotten of natural sinful parentage, right? But then we have to be born again, don't we? And how are we begotten that second time? of the incorruptible seed of the Word of God that lives and abides forever. Amen? And what is God's DNA in us? It is His Holy Spirit. Amen? So He says in Romans 8, He has sent forth His Spirit into our hearts, giving us the right to call Him Daddy. If a five-year-old runs up to me, who is not one of my six, and says, Abba, or Daddy. I'm like, right over there, sweetheart. Okay, oh, and runs to Abba, right? And it's because they don't have a right to call me Abba. Because they're not my child. They're not born of me. And we don't have a right to call God our Father until we are born of Him. Until his spirit comes inside of us, giving us a new energizing, a new nature, a new outlook, a new power, a new love. Love for him, love for our brethren. Praise God. And when this happens, he has sent forth his spirit into our hearts by which we cry out, Abba. This is parallel to John 1.12 when he says he came to his own and his own did not take him in. That's how that should be translated. But as many as took him in, to them he gave the exousia, the right, the power, the authority, the legitimacy to become the sons of God, those who received him. Not in some intellectual sense but who actually received his spirit into their lives, suddenly this right and power and legitimacy came where they could say, Abba, and the Almighty would turn and say, What, son? How can I help you? 
As many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. To those who believed in his name, who were born. Not of blood, not of flesh, nor will of man, but of God. Amen. In the same chapter of Romans, he shows us that our adoption as sons of God can be lost. That it is in fact something that must be maintained. What does he say about that? How does he show that it's an ongoing reality? In the same chapter, he says, as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. John makes that synonymous with love. He says that we're born of God if we love according to God's kind of love. And he said, we know we've passed out of death and into life because we love. So this shows that this infilling is not a once filled, always filled. It's not this one-time encounter where God really touched me. But God wants a relationship with us. And it's not like it's constantly on the maintenance rack, but it's got to be a vibrant, growing relationship. This term, led by the Spirit, we use it so flippantly. We don't know what it even means, but it always denotes a weakened side and a powerful side, a child side and an adult side. When do you see a person being led by another person? Well, you see all children being led, right? Hands out here and they're just being led, right? Who else do you see being led? You see the blind being led. You see the deaf being led. You see the lame, the crippled, the aged. You see those who don't have internal leading being led. Amen? You can't be led by the Spirit of God if you're still being led by your own desires. James says they are carried away or led away by their own desires when the devil tempts us. So we have to displace our ambition, our plans with God's plan, with God's Spirit, with His purpose, His direction, His vision for our lives. And we got to be weak or else we don't need to be led. This is how Jesus starts his relationship with the apostles. What are the two words that define this? Follow me. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't give them doctrine. He doesn't give them theology. He just says, follow. Don't be led by your own volition. Don't be led under your own power. Be a follower. Be led by the Spirit of God. And then, let's say we're born of God's Spirit. Let's say we're led by God's Spirit. Let's say we are sons of God. We received the exousia. We received the spiritual DNA. How do we undo that? We reject the process that continues the good work that God began. If you are without discipline, listen to this, of which a handful of real bad ones have become partakers, is that what he says? If you are without discipline of which... All have become partakers. You are illegitimate bastards and not sons at all. Amen. We're sons if we're led by the Spirit. But the Spirit must lead through discipleship. Because we're capable of turning our sonship into illegitimacy, into bastardliness when we say we don't need that anymore. 
We don't want it. We just want to be accepted for who we are. Who you are in God or who you are in the flesh. Who you are in God is always going to accept discipline. It's always going to embrace discipleship. And that is qualifications for being accepted. Who you are in the flesh, is that really what you want to be accepted for? Amen. The one that cannot please God, according to Romans 8. And what we're declaring in this coming season is we're saying, I know the difference between the carnal, fallen, fleshly version of me and the new man God is making me to be. And when somebody comes to point out the old man, I'm not going to take it as an insult but a reminder. Because the new man ain't the one with the bad attitude. The new man isn't the one with the pride. The new man isn't the one with the judgments and the chip on their shoulder. That's the old man. Put him back in the grave and prove that you're a son of God. Put him back where he belongs. Don't cry over him. Don't mourn for him. Rejoice over his demise. Separate yourself from everything in common with that old man. So how can we be secure in God? By secure, I don't mean complacent. Greatest men and women of God that I've ever known are not complacent about their obedience, about their salvation, about their spiritual growth and maturity. Those who are with the Lord, Brother Blair, he was not complacent about any of those things. My mom and my siblings can testify, he was not complacent. And because he wasn't complacent, he stayed attuned and eager to be led by the Spirit of God. In short, he remained a child. Because big people aren't led, only children are led. So how do we become secure in God? Well, it's not complacency. What is godly security? Well, let's ask, what is ungodly insecurity? Ungodly insecurity doubts the word of God. Ungodly insecurity doubts the love of God and the power of God and the goodness of God and the presence of God and the people. Godly security does not place its confidence in the flesh, but it places strong confidence in God. It says God is able. God is patient. He is long-suffering. He is powerful. He is gracious. He is loving. And He is helping me. What does godly security look like it looks like Paul saying, who is adequate? And then he says, he answers, God has made us adequate. Not as if anything were coming from ourselves, he says, 
but our adequacy is from God who has made us adequate not as ministers of the letter that kills but of the spirit that gives life. Does that sound like confidence? Yes. Does that sound like security? Yes. Paul is not going to be soon shaken. Paul is not going to have wobbly faith, fickle convictions. He's not going to be on and off with God. Again, in another place in Philippians, he says, I can do everything God's telling me to do through Christ who empowers me to do it. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Does that sound like insecurity? That sounds like security. Security in what? In the relationship, in my ability to follow God as a child and in his goodness to treat me as a child so long as I keep faith. Insecurity, fearful, cowardly insecurity, is disgusting. It's not pitiful. It's disgusting. It's a slap in the face of God. It says, your love isn't enough. Your truth isn't enough. Your grace isn't enough. You're not enough. It is the kind of attitude that demanded a sign from Jesus after signs were erupting all around this wicked and perverse generation. Do something powerful. Oh, look, Lazarus is coming out of the grave. I know, we're asking him for a sign. Just wait a minute. Do something powerful. Oh, look, a leper has just come away clean. I know, be quiet. Do something powerful, God. And this dynamic speaks to us from hell. It's in fact the only statement we get in the Bible that comes directly from hell. The rich man told Abraham that his brothers would come to repentance if only God would raise someone from the dead. Which is to say, their unbelief is a problem of power on God's part. This is such a lie. Such a betrayal of all the goodness and love and grace and power and patience and mercy and nearness of God. We need to recognize the power of faith and of confession. It is as powerful to confess your lies as it is to confess God's truth. I want to read you a couple scriptures now and I'll wrap it up. First, I'm just going to read some commentary that I wrote a couple years ago on this topic. When you're up to your ears in problems and you tell a companion that your victory is impossible, expect no help from God. Because the Bible says that we must ask without any doubting and he who doubts is like the wave of the sea and he's double-minded and he ought to expect that he will receive zilch from God. The power is in your faith and your faith is expressed through words. Negative confessions are as powerful as positive ones. Just easier to slide from your doubting lips. Scripture declares that we are, and I quote, snared by the words of our mouth. Again, in Proverbs 18, 7, he says, A fool's mouth 
is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Do you believe you could snare your victory? Just like a coyote passing through a fence gets his leg caught and becomes stuck in the snare of the trapper, do you believe you could catch and snare your victory and ultimately your soul through a negative confession? If you don't believe it, you don't believe the Bible. Because that's what it says in Proverbs. A fool's mouth is his ruin. And his lips are a snare to his soul. And yet Paul tells us, if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts, we have different outcomes, don't we? You need to be careful, brothers and sisters, when Jesus says that you will be judged for every idle word, the word he's using there, the word idle is not like a car in idle or idolatry. It's every useless, purposeless commitment. Every time you make an avowal of something that is not true, you're going to be judged by that. Every time you say, I just don't know why I can't get a change. Don't even say that. You know why. He has shown you, oh man, what doth the Lord require. You just don't want to walk humbly and love mercy and do what is right. Let God be true and every man a liar. Or else give up on Christianity. I want us to make some positive confessions before this is out. But even in your heart right now, as the word of God is coming to you, you can be saying, I believe you, Jesus. I trust you, God. Your word is true. I yield my spirit. I know this is right. Or you can be saying, well, I've tried that and it didn't work. Let God be true and every man a liar. Thank you, Jesus. Can you read Deuteronomy 26 and 1, all the way down through verse 11? This is what God commanded them in anticipation of the victory that they were going to get. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God has given you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Amen. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Armean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there. Few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. 
and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders, and he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God, and you shall worship before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Amen. So Moses is telling them that when you come through your battles and at last you come into the promised land, you're supposed to bring a basket of gratitude. And you're supposed to bring it in and set it down at the feet of the priest and say, my father was a wandering Aramean and a Semite, but God did great things. And my ancestors were slaves in Egypt, but God set us free. And I'm here to say he did what he promised, and I am here to rejoice in all the goodness of God. This is a positive confession. That's what this is. And that's what we're doing when we remember what God has done. We're declaring you are good, you are great, and your mercies endure forever. Thank you, Jesus. Let's read a couple other scriptures here. Psalms 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. How many of us have said, thank you, Jesus, since we came into this room? A lot of us have. But did you mean it? Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why are you sitting here in this place? Why are you surrounded by men and women of integrity, fallen and failing, but struggling to serve God with all their might? What did you do to deserve this? Why do you know the gospel? Why do you know the power of God unto salvation? Was it your pedigree? Was it your worthiness? Was it your exploits? Why? Why do we feel his presence in our midst through this whole meeting? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. I told the young people last night, if you will start your day with three things, you will never fall into habitual failure. Start your day with brokenness, a sense of undeservedness, and a basket of gratitude. Brokenness, undeservedness, and gratitude. That will never be a failed life. That will be someone who recognizes the goodness of God in the land of the living. You want to break a habit? Change comes in two phases. First, God breaks our will. Then we must break the habit. But you're not going to break the habit unless you start with brokenness, undeservedness, and gratitude. Nahum 1 and 7. Yahweh is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Psalms 34. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Thank you, Jesus. John tells us, behold, and it means to see or to look at. 
He says, look at the kind of love that the Father has bestowed upon us, enabling us to become and be called the sons of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe God has given you the love that enables you to be a son? God, I consider the kind of love that you have bestowed on my life. I consider that this undeserving love enables me to be your son. Can you say that? Can you pray that? Can you confess that? The Amplified reads in 1 John 4, We have come to know by personal experience and have believed with deep, consistent faith the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides continually in him. Your translation may say, we have come to know and rely upon the love God has for us. You see, we let ourselves off the hook whenever we say, well, I would if only this would change or God would do that or he would say or do that or she would be different. We let ourselves off the hook because we have encountered the power that created the world. We have known the love that bled on the cross on our behalf. We have met with the Lord and my goodness, we have no excuse for not doing his will. But in order to make ourselves not look like the cheapskates that we are, we claim that we don't have what we need. It's a reproach. It's a reproach and it's one we can repent of today. Is it your circumstance that's holding you up? No. Is it your upbringing that's holding you up? No. Is it your past that's holding you up? Nope. What is it that's holding you up? Oh, is it that God's not powerful? Is that what's holding you up? God's not good? God's not gracious? God's not loving? No, there's only one thing holding me up. I'm scared to trust him and lose all my excuses and see what a lazy oaf I really am. Amen. I'm going to trust him. Amen. Say it if you believe it. I trust you, God. Say it if you believe it. I believe you, God. I can overcome Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can be the father you've called me to be. I can be the son you've called me to be. I can be led, Jesus. I can be led. I can be led by the Spirit. Amen. Do you believe God's made you adequate? I'm serious. Do you believe it? Can we thank him for that? Thank you, God, for making me adequate. Mean it from your heart. Thank you, God, for making me adequate to do your will and to be your son. Thank you, God, for giving me your grace. Thank you for the love that enables me to be a son. I'm looking at it, Jesus. I'm looking at the kind of love that enables me to be a son. 
It's not the kind of love that flatters. It's not the kind of love that lies to me. It's the kind of love that takes me by the hand and gets me out of that slough of despond and onto the promised land. Thank you, Jesus. This is how you overcome. If you can keep what we're feeling, if you can keep hold of this, this is the victory that overcomes the world. Your faith. Amen. But faith is our responsibility. It's our response to God's activity. And don't blame him for not doing enough. He's done so much for me, I cannot tell it all. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. How does that song, The Love of God, what are the verses to that? Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every star on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure. How measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels song. God's done it. God's done it. Confess it. He's done it. He's done it. He's conquered He's given us the victory. How many times in the Old Testament did the Lord say through the prophet, tell the children of Israel to go forth, for I have delivered this enemy into your hands. It happened a couple times, right? And so they said, did you hear that? Jesus did it all. And they stayed home and had peanut butter and jelly. He didn't tell them that while they were sitting on their haunches. He told them that when they were all in armor gear going out to fight the devil. God has delivered this enemy into your hands. But they still had to go out there. But they didn't go in their strength. They went with the strength that God provides. Hallelujah. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to pulling down strongholds. Jesus said, you're going to suffer persecution, little flock. But don't be afraid. I have overcome them all. Amen? So he tells us, I've overcome. I have delivered this into your hands. And some say, well... Let's just sit by and eat peanut butter and jelly because Jesus delivered them into our hands. No, he delivered them into our hands. So get up and move in that deliverance. Get up and move in the grace that gives you the power to be what God's called you to be. On your own strength, you're a big zilch. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Brother Robert used to say, we're just zeros with the rim knocked off. Amen. That's what we are without God. We're not trying to show what we can do. Amen. But I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul says, I worked harder than you all, but it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Thank you, Jesus. He has made us adequate. You are adequate to be different when you leave this room. You are adequate to have the victory when you leave this room. God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Change your attitude. Understand that trust is what allows you to be accepted you're his child, and that's our joy. Not that he pats us on the back. Not that we get a ribbon. Oh, you've gone this long, and you didn't act like a monster. Well, that deserves an applause, I suppose, but that's not what it's about. 
We want to say you're led by the Spirit. You're not led by your own devices, your own plans. Thank you, Jesus.